Well, thank you so much for being here this morning as we continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew. I do want to say this as we begin, and I'd rather say it at the end of the class because about half the class isn't here yet. Of course, maybe, well, there's several sick. There were several sick, and then the rain may. There it is. There's the rain. Well, the Bible talks about the latter-day rain, and so we should rejoice. Latter-day rain. Can somebody say amen to that? Okay. But I um, do want to say a big, big thank you to Ronald Lytano and Lieutenant Commander Andy Thaxton. <clears throat> Let me tell you, you just don't know, except for those of you who've had responsibility to do any leadership or teaching or whatever on a regular basis, how wonderful it is to know that there are folks that you can rely on that if you can't come or need a break or for whatever it is, you just don't want to face the audience another Sunday morning. Come on in, Barry. I was talking about facing the audience. Uh, that uh, Barry's my friend, though, and so uh, Phil knows what that means. <laughs> that uh, it's a wonderful thing that the Lord raises up men and women with gifting and anointing to serve the needs of His people. That's a wonderful thing. Everyone in the church, every member of the church has a gift and an anointing for some purpose. But there's some gifts and anointing that, if you would, are more obviously needed in gathering and leading and doing group activities and speaking to the church in larger numbers than just one-on-one. And so we're thankful for all of them, but especially for me personally, for those upon whom I can rely in a time when I cannot be here or will not be here for whatever reason. Okay, I think that's all that I need to say about that. And, and by the way, I did mention <clears throat> lieutenant commander because Andy has just been promoted from what? Lieutenant to lieutenant commander, right? So, amen. Well, you see? So... In, in the real sense, he's the top brass in this room, <laughs> in a real sense. So whenever, if you ever think he's brassy, there's a reason for that. Father, thank you so much for ministering to us, being so faithful. Father, when I know for me and maybe for everyone here, Father, when I compare your faithfulness to mine. Father, it is as if mine is dark and yours is absolute light. Father, we are thankful that your faithfulness to do your work and your ministry and to use us, to minister to and through us and among us. Father, we're thankful that your faithfulness is not dependent upon ours but is the result of your own goodness. So, Father, again, we ask this morning, not because we are afraid that you will not, not because we have ever experienced a lack of faithfulness, but because you have said, pray and ask of me, and I will show you. So, Father, minister this morning to us according to your faithfulness, your mercy, and your kindness 
that one man has paid the full sufficient price that we should be yours and that you should be our faithful Heavenly Father forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we open in chapter 19 of the Gospel of Matthew, and this morning we're going to look at the first six verses. And the first six verses fall within a group of verses, the first 20. And this is a conversation, or if you would, a contrast between the biblical understanding of the law of God in relation to marriage specifically and the man-made understanding and manipulation and misuse of that great law of God. And so let's read verse 1 together. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, remember the sayings that Ronald and Andy spoke about in the last several days. When Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee, and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him and healed him there. Jesus now has just finished the discourse in chapter 18, as we said, and this is the called typically the fourth uh, sermon. There are five sets of sermons or discourses in Matthew. You have chapters 5 through 7, then you have chapter 10, you have chapter 13, you have chapter 18, and then the next major sermon group are chapters 23 to 25. So we've just finished the fourth major sermon group of Matthew. One of the ways to outline Matthew is to see that he constructs his presentation and picture and portrait of Jesus around these five sermons. And so Jesus now decides to leave and to go to Galilee. And so, it, this verse 1 opens with ominous words, ominous words. You see, the Holy Spirit is not just telling Matthew, say to us, Jesus is now leaving, you know, Galilee, and He's going into Judea, because I need to write a 300-word ser- uh, sermon, and I want to make sure I have all the words. Remember in school when they asked you to write a certain number of words? Now I understand by computers you can add those, but I never did understand. Is a teacher actually going to sit there, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 2,826, 2,820? I don't think so. Every word, every word in this Scripture, in this Bible, every word, every phrase has significance. Why? Because it is God the Holy Spirit who pens these words through human beings. And so, why is this a significant verse? These are ominous words. Because, you see, Jesus now has made a decision, not a decision that He hasn't made previously. He is on a decided path, the path of Jesus from His very inception in the Virgin Mary to his going into the Jordan in baptism, to going out into the wilderness, returning and then mingling and ministering among the Israelites or the people of God in those regions that we see in Galilee and Judea and Samaria and so on. This is all a decided pattern of warfare, a decided pattern of warfare. In fact, his birth is announced in warfare. 
What do you mean warfare? Well, just remember for a moment, and this is not in my notes, and this is what happens when I speak without looking at my notes. In Luke, you get the announcement of the birth of Jesus to the shepherds. Behold, I bring you good tidings of a great joy, God's joy. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts. Now, what does that word host mean? Well, what we have here is just a whole lot of little baby cherubs playing on little harps. La, 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 la. No. So let me give you ex only one example of what the word host is as used in the Old Testament. Just one. We can give you many. And you can look it up in your concordance. And in chapter 5 of Joshua, this man has now been anointed and mandated to lead the nation to destroy the seven nations of the Canaanites in order to occupy, possess, and take over the promised land of God. And in chapter 5, Joshua is walking along or maybe by himself praying or whatever. And all of a sudden, he sees a man standing before him, a man in glistening armor with a very big, sharp sword. And Joshua asks an extremely wise question. Are you our people or are you their people? Are you for us or against us? Listen to the answer. Neither. I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. What is that host? That's the heavenly army of God. The flaming angels, angels with flaming swords. David says to the Philistine, I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts. It's like I am here representing the armies of Rome against you, infidel. And so when the Bible says the heavenly host, it means a whole lot more than just a bunch of little angels singing sweet Christmas songs. This is an announcement of the greatest military confrontation and victory the world will ever know. Through this one man, the captain of our salvation is now upon the earth. That's what this is the heavenly hosts. So you remember that the next time we sing and hear that word what? Hosts. And get excited, for the king is here. But the king, you see, must go through the most arduous experience of all in order to save his people from their sins. So he decides to go to Jerusalem. Why? Jesus going to Jerusalem is in obedience to God's predetermined plan for his life. This word predestination, which so many either fear or hate. Listen to what the apostle Peter says on the day of Acts as he's preaching to the people concerning what has happened in the last 50 days with the death and the burial and now the resurrection of this carpenter from Nazareth. 
He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined, predestinating, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you see, Jesus is weighted down and is being weighted down with the increased reality of the cross. It is increasingly waiting on him. Now, how many of us have ever had to face an ordeal? And the ordeal is three months from now. And how many of you know that the closer you get to the ordeal, what? <sighs> have anybody, anybody ever? Frank, have you ever experienced that? Frank has been through some ordeals in his life. And he and I know what we're talking about. I have been through them. Jane's been through them. All of us have been through them. And the closer he gets, the bigger it gets, the weightier it gets. But you see, to most of us, we would be so preoccupied with the ordeal, and especially this particular ordeal, this particular ordeal, that we would be probably sidelined from the various needs around us, perhaps even our own. And we would probably be missing a lot of the things that we should be doing. Oh, I just forgot to do that. I have so much on my mind. I just, you just, you know, I understand, brother, you just have a weight on you. It's okay. You did. That's not Jesus. And as he's going purposely to the cross, according to the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, crowds follow him. And it's not as if, hey, look, look, I love y'all, love hugs and kisses, whatever, but you don't understand what's going to be happening. I just need to be by myself. I need to, et cetera, et cetera. And he withdraws. No, he plunges into the crowd to meet the needs of the people. Why does he do this? Why does he do this? You see, in John 10, 11, he gives us the answer. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. And you see, the purpose of Jesus stated this way, it can be stated various ways, is to be God's shepherd who has been sent to the world, into the world, to biblically or godly shepherd God's people into the pasture of God where they will be ministered to and where their welfare will be maintained and protected and provided and guaranteed, etc., by the power of God forever. This is Jesus' purpose to be God's shepherd upon the earth to God's sheep. Now, in calling himself the good shepherd, Jesus is identifying himself as the divine shepherd. Now, listen to these words as that I'll read to you from Ezekiel 34. They're very similar to, uh, uh, what is it, Jeremiah 23, if you had a companion scripture. Jesus, when he says, I am the good shepherd, when people heard that, they are going to remember this reference from their scriptures, of course, which are the Old Testament scriptures. Ezekiel 34, 
For thus saith the Lord God. Now, who's speaking? Yahweh Himself, the Lord God, is speaking. Remember who is speaking here. Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. Do you hear the words of Jesus? I have come to seek and to save. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines, and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall their grazing shall be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture shall they feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. And Jesus said, says, I am the good shepherd. So what do we have here? Just in this little, just this little comment, the crowds came, you know, they followed him and he healed them. You have again the identification of the quintessential divine shepherd upon the earth. And so Jesus is the divine shepherd who has come into the world to free God's sheep from their bondage to Satan's tyranny. But you remember, in doing so, he is confronted. He is confronted by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Remember, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the glory of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. They may not see the gospel of God. And so there is an enemy who is obviously opposing the king of glory from taking over his evil kingdom. And so, Satan is using the religious system, the religion of Israel, which was given to the people to be for their freedom and to their benefit and for their welfare. He is now using it and corrupting and twisting it through men who have hearts against God or hardened hearts. And we'll see that in a few minutes or at least in a few days at least. And so, in doing so, in being God's shepherd, Jesus confronts the Pharisees who had turned God's law of liberty, remember, into a law of death by their misuse of the law. And we've seen this on other occasions. Remember, the Sabbath, is it right to do good or evil on the Sabbath? Sabbath, should you be able to help someone on the Sabbath? And this is what drove them crazy. They had their rules, and they wanted everyone to adhere to their rules. Now, what was happening was these men who were the religious leaders, who were the ones whom God had given the right to teach and to lead the people in the oracles of God, in the Word of God. They were misusing. They were abusing. They were interpreting the law of God in a way that God had never intended. And I think all of us get into that. We have to be very careful. I have to be very careful not to make my preferences on the same level or even near the level of God's law and God's will. 
And I think we all have to be aware of that propensity that we all have in any particular area of our life. But when there are men or women, when there are people who teach the Word unbiblically, and there's a lot of it out there in the world, let me just say this. You be very careful if you are a, what do you call it, a TV um, uh, watcher of, of the, uh, the TV, what do you call them, evangelists or teachers or whatever. And this is not a pell-mell um, indictment of all of them. I love YouTube because on YouTube I can find some of the most incredible instruction concerning the Word of God that I would not find anywhere else. So you punch in the Reformation and you get all kinds of things by good, solid, qualified men of God and in other areas concerning the Trinity or concerning any of the issues that are important to us. And there is incredible teaching out there. But there is also incredible bad teaching out there. And you have to be careful. And so for those who are not teaching and administering the Word of God correctly and clearly, listen to these words, and they not only pertain to the shepherds of Israel in those days, but I think they also pertain to any of us who give advice and counsel to believers, especially when a believer has needs. I cannot tell you over the last 27 and some odd years that I have had people coming into the office with particular very deep needs, personal health issues, personal relationship issues, personal financial issues, personal theological issues, whatever it is. And by the way, it all boils down to a theological issue, whatever it is. And what we do when we counsel people, we hope to And by the leading of the Spirit, we will counsel them according to the counsel of the Holy Spirit. He is our helper, our counselor, our teacher, remember, in John 15. And so we counsel according to the Word of God and according to the will of God and according to the purpose of God primarily, not according to the purpose and needs of the person primarily. Do you see that? The primary basis of counseling is about the purpose and person of God primarily, which if that is adhered to and received, then the benefit for the welfare of the believer will occur. And so not too long ago, I had a particular person in the office, and this particular person has experienced an estrangement of a relationship the person's wrestling. What do I do? What do I do? And so we've talked about it, but we talk about it this way. Do not make your need the satisfying of what you understand you want. The relief to you of your difficulty the amelioration of hurt. Don't make those things an idol. Don't make those things more important than to say what the Lord himself said, Father, 
if it be your will, but if not, then your will be done if your will is not to take this cup pass from me. So we have to struggle through issues in our lives. And if you would, to see beyond them to the purpose and person of God himself. And what does he want about himself in this situation in me? Not as what does he want about me, but what does he want about himself? His image, his purpose, his glory, his mercy, his kindness, his faithfulness, his power, his whatever. That's the essential thing. What is there about and for God in this that I must seek to understand and receive and walk in? Because if that's where I am, and by faith I begin to walk that path, then the will of God will be done in me in a much more glorious way than if I don't see it. Now, notice I did not say the will of God won't be done in you, and it won't be glorious, and you're not getting anything, and God's not going to listen. I didn't say. I say it will be done in a much more satisfying and glorious way in us to our welfare in a much greater way than it would otherwise. And so be careful. If you have needs, you are the target at that moment, just like I am, of the enemy. You are fresh meat. You are roadkill. And he's coming to get you. The moment things begin to happen in your life, the enemy is coming to get you. Amen? He's coming to get you. I can testify to that. My wife can testify to that. He's coming to get you. And we have to fight for the person, the purpose, and the pleasure of God to be manifested and maintained through it all. Amen? That we have to fight for that. Be very careful what you look for and hope for and what you receive from others. If the centrality of the counsel is not about and for God himself, question it. Didn't say, you know, what they say, refuse it, but what? Question it, discern it, amen? It has to be about the person and the purpose, and the pleasure of God. That's where our counsel needs to be, and that's what we need to be giving. And so the Word says, and I'll just summarize it, the Lord condemns these sheep who were supposed to be feeding his, the shepherds rather, supposed to be feeding his sheep, but were feeding themselves. Feeding themselves. And the Lord says, woe unto you. Now, what you don't want to hear is the Lord say, woe unto you. You don't want to ever hear that word. That's not a word you want to hear. But he says, woe unto you. And so, in order to correct that, then the Lord in the next set of verses from 11 on, as we already read, said, I myself will be the shepherd of my people. So, in verse 3, we see a glaring example of the Pharisees as false prophets or false shepherds. 
And the Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking. You see, tested him. You see, tested him. There it is. Is it lawful for, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any reason? Now, in what way does this question expose the false shepherds? What way? You see, this is a question that's so often asked by us as believers. We look at something, an activity, we look at a thought, we look at a desire, we look at whatever. And we ask, I wonder if this is something I have freedom to do or whatever. And we begin to go down that road. And we have to be very careful. Because you see, the question that they are asking about divorce is the wrong question. They're asking the question from the perspective of their benefit, of their freedom, of their right. They're asking the question based on their right, their freedom. In Christ, we have been made free. Amen? We are now free. But that freedom is not to be walked out on the basis of what my freedom is is to be walked out on the basis of I am now free from being shackled by sin and Satan and am now free to hear and to receive and to walk in the will of God. It is not a matter of I am free to do something. It is a matter of I am now free to freely receive the will of God. And so often I hear, well, I'm free to do this. I'm free to do that. The Pharisees are asking the same questions. We're free to divorce because we read something in Deuteronomy. So here's what Deuteronomy 24.1 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her. Did you get that? Is it in your notes? Yes. Yes. Okay, but okay. Look at the word when. Circle the word when. When a man marries. That's the activity comma. Do you see a comma after that phrase? That's an adverbial phrase, right? Comma. What's the next word after the comma? If. If. Circle the if. That's important. If. That's important. If she finds no favor in his eyes because she has found, he has found some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. When they get married and if he finds something wrong with her. You see, the Lord had created marriage as the quintessential revelation of his purpose for his people. But what had happened is that the Pharisees had made marriage about man and about a man's need rather than about God and about his glory. And I could say the same thing about the women. Women make marriage to be about them and their needs rather than about God and his glory. I mean, how many of us who either are married or have been married have gotten into all kinds of stew because the thing at the moment wasn't about me and for me, and I didn't like doing it anyway? Amen? I mean, sometimes Dean will ask me to do some innocuous thing that I should do and is good to do and whatever, and I sometimes huff and puff. I did that twice (laughs) in the last five minutes. I like you. You need to be on the front row. You are my best audience. I love that. 
Everybody knows Hannah. <laughs> this is ha-ha Hannah. I like that. It's marriage is not about us. If we can get this in our minds about husbands and wives, primarily, secondarily, and any other larily, marriage ain't about us. It's about God using us to declare his image. It's not about you, ladies. Hey, guys, it's not about you. It's about the glory of God. And we've missed it so much in the church. It's a terrible indictment. It is incredible to me, and it shouldn't be, but it is because we are the people of God. We're people of God will decry same-sex marriage. (gasps) (gasps) And they will yell and bellow and scream and hold up placards, but yet they never, ever talk about the scourge of divorce in the church. And it is not same-sex marriage that causes God's name to be blasphemed. It is divorce and all other sins in the church that causes God's name to be blasphemed. God will never be blasphemed about, um, um, you know, in same-sex marriage. He can only be blasphemed by his people who will not do his will. Can somebody say amen? Isn't it interesting, and I know it is for me, It's so much easier for me to criticize all the other people because I'm so good. You see, they were interested and more focused on how to undo the sanctity of marriage and the security of marriage rather than how to defend the sanctity and security of marriage. Their focus was on the impermanence of a marriage rather than on the permanence of a marriage. You see, they made their mistake in supposing that the emphasis of Deuteronomy 24.1 was upon a man's ability to divorce. But that is not the emphasis. Could a man divorce his wife for any indecency or any uncleanness was one thought. Or could a man divorce his wife for a particular indecency or uncleanness? Which one was it? There were two schools. Any, any. Anything, we're out of here. No, no, not any. I, I don't think God was emphasizing the word any. I think that he was emphasizing the word indecency or uncleanness. So we're, it's neither one. You see, they missed the entire intent of the passage. They were using the passage an excuse to free a man from what he might consider a bad marriage, a marriage that did not meet his perceived expectations or needs his convenience, his likes. However, the Lord did not give the passage to Moses to sanction divorce, but to regulate the fact of divorce and remarriage because of sin. You see, God is a realist. realist. He says this, marry and never divorce. But he also understands and knows obviously well that there's sin in each one of us because we're fallen creatures. Any of us here have no sin? Anybody at all? Did you just raise your hand? Chris, did you just raise your hand? Oh, it's on the floor. 
I was trying to pick it up off the floor. And so he's regulating divorce. Why? Because if he doesn't regulate it, all of a sudden, divorce becomes a pell-mell activity. Everybody gets divorced. So he's holding the reins back on something which is a result of sin. Did you notice that I connected divorce in a believer's life with sin? Did anybody notice that? I didn't connect it with incompatibility or failure to communicate adequately or sexual whatever or financial something or intellectual whatevers. Sin. You may want to think about this. Sin is the only activity that can harm and destroy relationships. You can have the worst disease in the world and, in fact, not only have a good relationship, but that one that will be drawn in a greater way, right? You can have poverty all over the place and a magnificent relationship. Sin is that which touches relationships. Nothing else can touch a relationship in a detrimental or destructive way. Nothing. So whenever there's a relationship that we are experiencing and there's, uh uh-oh, this and that and the other thing, always remember this. At the heart of this thing is a three-letter word, sin. And the middle letter in the word sin is I. Me. Me rather than thee. Me rather than thee. Remember what we said? Marriage is about for and from God. So Jesus is regulating. I mean, the, the, the Lord gave the, the law to regulate the, the activity that sin produces, the destruction that sin produces. He's not giving you a way out of a marriage. And unfortunately, I've, I've had too many. How many is too many? One. Thank you. How many is too many? One. So don't ask, how many, how many? One. I've had too many to say to me, well, as believers, can I get a divorce? What Bible are you reading? What word of God are you hearing? What message and from whom are you hearing this message? Because a question like that says this, this relationship is about me rather than about thee. Mark 5, 10, 5, because it was because of the, you know, the hardness of your hearts. Why divorce? The hardness of your heart. See, God created marriage as a sacred union of a man and a woman that would image the most sacred union of all that would image the most significant truth about himself, about God himself. And this is the reason why Jesus gave this answer. Listen to Jesus' answer. Verse 4 to 6. Have you not read all of a sudden the Scriptures, the Scriptures, the script? You want the answer? Go to the Scriptures. 
Don't tell them about your, your, your wife did this and that or your husband did this and that or whatever. Don't tell me about all that. Tell me about what first thus saith the Lord. And once we know what the Lord says, then we can begin to apply the Word of God to the husband and to the wife. And where there's sin on both sides, because there is always sin on both sides, always, 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 amen, always, then the Word of God can begin to reveal sin, deal with sin, and heal from sin. Reveal, deal, and heal. Otherwise, if we don't get the Word of God in here and we don't get down to that which is the root, the thing will never be able to be resolved biblically. have to get to the root. So you see, the root isn't that my husband's a bum and a drunk. The root is not that my wife is a, a miserable manipulator. That is not the root. The root is what? One more, what, what? Sin. Don't be afraid. Sin. Haven't you read that he who created them in the beginning made them both male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. And it's, you know, I'm tired of hearing. You see, the Word of God says it should be a man and a woman marry, not a man and a man and a woman and a woman. Church, let's stop that foolishness and let's emphasize the Word of God. The two become one and let them not be separated. That's the emphasis of the verse. Amen? Ours is to do the will of God and to show that that will of God is supreme and to our welfare and to His blessing. That's where our focus is to be. We're not here to be correcting the ills of the world. We are here to be living righteously so that the righteousness of God in this community may, in the power of the Holy Spirit, deal with the unrighteousness of the world. We're not on a crusade against the world. We're on a crusade for Christ, in Christ, for the glory of God, which is God's way of being on a crusade against the world. You see, Jesus' answer about the, answered about the permanence of marriage is based on God's promise in the creation. He quotes two passages, you may have noticed, Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. He quotes those two passages. Now, what was God's purpose in marriage? That the husband and the wife are to no longer be two but one flesh. You see, in the marriage, the Lord creates a new identity for the man and for the woman. The old identity of singleness is no longer there. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone be in Christ, you have a new identity. The old has passed away. You remember that? Behold, all things have become new. The old identity of singles as disconnected and unrelated to each other is replaced with a new identity as two in union. Therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. Therefore, they should never divorce. Now, in studying this, my purpose was and my plan was, my purpose and plan was next week or the next time we get together. We won't be next week. We'll have a truncated service Christmas Eve. But 
uh, the next time we get together was to go ahead and verse 7 to the end of this particular uh, um, section of Scripture. I think it's verse 20 and talk about this. But the Lord stopped me. And he said this, we're going to spend the next few weeks connecting or at least constructing better biblical basis for marriage by talking about the creation and God's purpose for humanity, man and woman, as applied to and worked out in the marriage. So we're going to begin to talk about marriage from a Genesis perspective and look at Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33 as a theological comment about that perspective and discuss that. <clears throat> and then the context of this, we're going to talk about the most peculiar, unique, radical love of all, God's kind of love as opposed to man's kind of love within the context of marriage. So we're going to take a little course, if you would, to the side and then come back and move forward. Amen? So thank you for being here. We'll see you next time whenever that is.